0: Hello, lover of things that go bump in the night. This is Dan Cummins. And I'm Lindsay Cummins. And we co-host the paranormal horror podcast, Scared to Death. Are shadow people real? What about demonic possessions? poltergeist activity. Do you believe in ghosts? Malevolent entities? or aliens real? Could you be abducted? We don't know, but what we do know is that we have over 230 episodes of stories on our podcast, Scared to Death, exploring all of the possibilities. Each week, we share several supposedly true stories that have been gathered from around the world and submissions from our own fans of allegedly true tales. Curious about the paranormal? Just like a spooky story, do you need more fear to fuel you through your long work days? Come join us. New episodes Of Scared to Death are released every Tuesday night. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you end up scared to death.
1: It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what will cure that? Weed.
0: Or you could try to balance
1: your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f is going on? Forget get the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts.
0: Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Boo That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of domestic violence, sexual assault, violent rape, murder, and other adult content. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13.
1: Howard Strickling received a phone call in the early hours of a fall day in 1933.
0: On the other end of the line was MGM movie star Clark Gable, babbling drunkenly and clearly upset. He had hit a pedestrian with his car. She was dead.
1: Such a phone call might have rattled most handlers, But for Strickling and his partner, Eddie Mannix, it was business as usual. Strickling reached out to the DA, arranging to pay the dead woman's family $125,000 to keep quiet, worth about $2.5 million today.
0: Meanwhile, Mannix searched MGM for a mid-level employee to take the fall for the murder in exchange for a handsome pension for his heirs.
1: They moved Gable to a secret bungalow in Los Angeles where he disappeared for the month to avoid the press.
0: Strickling made sure to erase any documentation linking the incident to MGM. The death of the anonymous woman was obliterated from history.
1: Gable's career went on unharmed. This is what Strickling and Mannix were good at. There was nothing they couldn't make disappear.
0: This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. In this show, we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events.
1: We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye.
0: This week, we'll take a look at the Hollywood studio system's scandal fixers, Eddie Mannix and Howard Strickling.
1: While Mannix and Strickling's names never appear in film credits, everyone in the film industry from the 1920s to the 1960s knew about this powerful duo.
0: Strickling worked in publicity, managing Star's stories in the press. He could make a scandal disappear or ruin someone the studio wanted run out of town. Mannix was the muscle. He had connections to the mob and was known to use physical confrontation to persuade others to shape up or ship out.
1: Together, Strickling and Mannix controlled the lives of golden age Hollywood stars and directors, driving MGM to become the most successful studio in Hollywood for nearly 30
0: years. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing reach out on facebook and instagram at parcast and twitter at parcast network.
1: And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com/merch for more information.
0: Eddie Mannix and Howard Strickling were thick as thieves. Everything one knew, the other knew, and neither could have succeeded alone.
1: Yet their backgrounds prior to working as MGM fixers couldn't have been more different.
0: Eddie Mannix was born in 1891 in New Jersey. While Mannix didn't start out in the film industry, he grew up alongside it as the motion picture camera was invented in New Jersey just three years before he was born.
1: Eddie attended elementary school, but dropped out in middle school to begin working in carpentry, bricklaying, and masonry.
0: Eddie was a big guy with a knack for fighting. He had early connections with the mafia and quickly earned the nickname,
1: the Bulldog. In his late teens, Eddie began working as a tradesman at the Palisades Amusement Park in Fort Lee, New Jersey. The park was operated by the Skank brothers, who would go on to be successful film executives.
0: Young Nick Skank noticed Eddie's potential out of over 100 employees. He was smart, cunning, and could throw a punch when he needed to. Skank moved Eddie from the construction team to the bookkeeping team.
1: This was where Eddie's fixer career officially began. Eddie worked the books at Palisades Park until the IRS began questioning their accounting practices. Eddie had saved the company a lot of money, illegally.
0: To avoid trouble with the IRS, Skank moved Eddie to a new role as Palisades Park's chief bouncer. Skank also started transitioning Eddie to operations manager and personal security.
1: When the Skank family decided it wasn't enough to merely operate Palisades Park and purchased it in 1910, 20-year-old Eddie was promoted to general manager of the largest amusement park in the eastern United States.
0: Part of Eddie's success was due to his understanding of the clientele. He came from the same blue-collar background as most of their guests.
1: He knew when to be tough and when fists were more effective than words. The ability to work with both white-collar management and blue-collar problems made him a rare and important asset.
0: The Skanks recognized this and kept Eddie close. As they continued to grow their fortunes and began financing movies in the early 1910s, Eddie saw a cut of the profits. He was able to move from a tiny tenement building in New Jersey to a new ritzy brownstone in a matter of years.
1: Eddie's employment and small fortune, combined with his working-class background, made him an attractive husband in his own social circles. In 1916, at 25 years old, he met and married his wife, Bernice Fitzmorris.
0: Bernice was an Irish woman two years younger than Eddie and a devout Catholic. Eddie was also Catholic, but not anywhere near as faithful as Bernice. Almost immediately, He began sleeping with other women. Bernice turned a blind eye to her husband's failures as the money kept rolling in, partially because her Catholic faith didn't allow for a divorce at the time.
1: Affairs weren't Eddie's only vice. He was also known to drink and gamble and had close ties to the Irish mob. He was willing to use the latter whenever his own tactics weren't enough to deal with a problem at the park.
0: These traits were exactly why the Skanks valued him so highly. Eddie could find out anything about anyone and was adept at intimidation tactics.
1: Meanwhile, the Skanks' film financing endeavors had brought them Lowe's Theatre in New York, one of the largest theatre chains in the nation. They slowly climbed the corporate ladder, and as they rose in power, they brought Eddie with them, often literally leading Eddie to make powerful connections to future Hollywood greats.
0: One of those greats was future MGM co-founder Louis Mayer. At the same time the Skanks were working for Lowe's Theaters in New York, Mayer had started a production company in Los Angeles.
1: Lowe's Theaters needed a steady supply of quality motion pictures to keep audience members in their seats. In order to control that flow, Marcus Lowe purchased Metro Pictures Corporation in 1919.
0: However, when those films failed to turn out the volume Lowe needed, he acquired Goldwyn Pictures in 1924.
1: Seeing this, Mayer approached Lowe about acquiring his own studio, Mayer Pictures. Marcus Lowe didn't just agree. He merged the three companies into Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, or MGM Studios, and made Mayer the head of the company in April of 1924.
0: The Skanks, who were major executives at the New York Lowe's offices, did not get along well with Mayer, and were suspicious of how he was running the company.
1: The L.A. office was bringing in more money than New York, and Mayer seemed to have different filmmaking and economic priorities than the Skanks. On top of that, Mayer's success could displace their own power in
0: Lowe's. The Skanks wanted to keep an eye on Mayer, so they sent their most trusted man to spy. Eddie was going to Hollywood.
1: Mannix was officially appointed to the position of Chief Controller and Personal Assistant to Irving Thalberg, the LA office's number two executive. But his real job was to keep Louis Mayer in check.
0: In November of 1924, Eddie and Bernice moved to Hollywood. Now in his early 30s, Eddie had been working for the Skanks for roughly a decade. He was used to a life of luxury and rubbing elbows with important film people.
1: Eddie's taste for luxury and his enormous ego were apparent in his choice of home. He bought Buster Keaton's former mansion, which was already famous locally.
0: The house suited the promotion. In L.A., Eddie's new position gave him access to important meetings, information, and people at the studio. He gained more power than he'd had in New York, with no overt supervision. On top of that, Eddie had the ear of the skanks, and therefore, of Lowe.
1: Soon he had Mayer's ear, too. The MGM exec took an immediate liking to Eddie's rough-and-tumble approach to fixing problems, and shared Eddie's love of womanizing.
0: Meanwhile, as Eddie Mannix was drinking, punching, and schmoozing his way to the top, Howard Strickling was climbing toward MGM on an entirely different track.
1: Strickling was from a quieter life than Mannix. He was born in 1896 in West Virginia, making him five years younger than Mannix.
0: His parents owned a small grocery store, which his father had opened in the aftermath of the Civil War.
1: In 1905, when Strickling was nine years old, his family moved from West Virginia to the farming community of Gardena, California, about 15 miles south of Los Angeles. At the time, the film industry had not yet reached California.
0: The family opened another grocery store, which Strickling grew up assisting in. He attended an agricultural high school, intending to run his own farm, but stumbled into work with the school newspaper it was abundantly clear he had a knack for writing.
1: When the Strickling family moved again in 1919, this time to the remote San Bernardino Valley to open another store, 23-year-old Howard decided to head to Hollywood and pursue a career in publicity.
0: In the 14 years since the Stricklings had moved to California, the movies had reached Los Angeles and exploded. By 1919, there were multiple major studios and hundreds of pictures being filmed annually.
1: These studios needed publicists to help promote their pictures, and Strickling wanted to be the man to do it. So he rented a room right off Hollywood Boulevard in hopes of finding work.
0: He had to share the cramped space, but it put him in walking distance of several major studios. He showed up in the offices every day with a resume and samples, determined to keep coming until he was hired.
1: Metro Studios took him on in 1919 as an office boy, which paid the bills while he kept looking for publicity work. In 1920, at age 24, Howard Strickling got his first break as a publicist at Goldwyn Studios. Strickling had now worked for two of the three companies that would become MGM.
0: Like Mannix, Strickling quickly gained the favor of an influential boss. His manager, Pete Smith, liked Strickling's country charm and work ethic, along with his yes man attitude. He took the 24 year old under his wing.
1: Strickling did not disappoint. He was an excellent writer who was willing to listen to authority while taking calculated risks. He was also good at building relationships.
0: So when Smith left Goldwyn to start his own firm in 1923, he took Strickling with him. Strickling continued to excel.
1: A year later, in 1924, Goldwyn merged with Metro and Mayer to become MGM. The new studio needed a new West Coast publicist, and Goldwyn's team remembered Smith's excellent work. They reached out, and Smith took the job.
0: Strickling stayed at Smith's independent firm for a year on his own, where he began to gain management and leadership skills. However, as soon as Smith was able to in 1925, he brought Strickling to MGM as his top assistant.
1: This was an enormous break for 29-year-old Strickling. Not only was he working at a huge studio with a lot of media clout, but Smith's high status at MGM meant that Strickling was meeting regularly with the studio's top dogs. One of those people was Eddie Mannix.
0: The two couldn't have been more different. Mannix was loud, abrasive, and would tell anyone to their face that he didn't agree with them. Strickling was quiet, polite, and in less flattering terms a bit of a bootlicker.
1: But the two wanted the same thing. They wanted this company to succeed, and they wanted to push publicity to a new frontier where it could be used to the studio's advantage. With their combined skill sets, Strickling and Mannix quickly discovered they could make almost any problem disappear.
0: It wasn't long before the two assistants officially became major players at MGM.
1: Barely a year into Mannix and Strickling's relationship, Pete Smith took gravely ill. Strickling was crushed, but it was a huge stroke of career luck. He was promoted to head of publicity. This meant that he controlled the image of every actor working for MGM, as well as major executives and the company brand itself. Meanwhile, Mannix was promoted to head of operations for the entire company which now had thousands of employees. Mannix had sway on everything from production schedules to which actors would be in which films.
0: Initially, Strickling and Mannix were viewed warmly by the stars. As Hollywood had learned in the early 1920s, with the Fatty Arbuckle and William Desmond Taylor cases, a scandal could tank an actor's career almost overnight.
1: If you had a problem Be it a public drinking charge, domestic abuse, or even manslaughter, every MGM star knew to go to Strickling and Mannix.
0: Strickling and Mannix began to track every aspect of their actors' lives. They read every telegram arriving to or leaving from both MGM and Culver City Western Union offices to head off scandals before they happened.
1: They paid off the locals, whether waiters, drivers, or hotel staff, to report gossip back to them. If they knew trouble was brewing, they could split up an affair or pay off journalists to keep the story quiet.
0: They also began building relationships with public officials who were open to bribes. Policemen and hospital workers were common and important assets to covering up scandals, especially those involving violence or abortion.
1: Strickling and Mannix quickly became all-powerful in Hollywood. If they didn't like what they saw, they could either destroy the scandal or destroy the actor causing the problem.
0: And as the 20s rolled into the 30s, many actors would be crushed beneath Strickling and Mannix's cover-up machine.
1: Next, MGM works to erase the LGBTQ actors that made them famous. Now, back to the story.
0: By 1930, 34-year-old Howard Strickling and 39-year-old Eddie Mannix were two of the most important and powerful people in Hollywood, though they couldn't have been more different as people.
1: Mannix was a rough-and-tumble, bouncer-gone executive known for his womanizing and mob connections.
0: Strickling was a country gentleman-gone publicist happily married, and preferred to destroy people through his control of the press and legal forgery.
1: Together, Mannix and Strickling had become the studio's fixers. They handled everything from public indecency to unwanted pregnancies to alleged murder charges.
0: Almost every star needed them at one point or another, though some were chronic problems. Clark Gable, for one. Gable joined the MGM team in 1930 and landed his first leading role in 1931. Gable went on to become one of MGM's biggest stars, proving immensely popular with fans and starring in over 60 motion pictures over the next 30 years.
1: But 31-year-old Gable was almost immediately a problem. He had a variety of odd behaviors and likely would have been diagnosed with a combination of OCD and PTSD today. He was known to bathe obsessively, sometimes three times a day, and have his bed linens changed twice daily, regardless of whether he'd had an afternoon nap or not.
0: He refused to take baths, as the idea of sitting in his own dirty water upset him deeply. This was a particularly demanding request, as showers were only starting to become commonplace in the 1930s and tended to be in newer or retrofitted establishments. It made Gable difficult to put up in hotels while traveling.
1: In addition, Gable was constantly drunk, a chronic womanizer despite being married, and once killed a pedestrian in a hit-and-run accident.
0: Actors' affairs were a problem for MGM. Sex outside of marriage was seen as morally offensive and could hurt stars' reputations and, therefore, their movie sales.
1: Second, affairs tended to end leaving strong feelings. This could make it increasingly difficult to cast popular actors and actresses opposite one another in films, as they all had scorned feelings between them.
0: Third, affairs often led to pregnancies, and nothing was worse for an actor or actress's reputation than a child out of marriage.
1: In the early 30s, Gable had sought a divorce from his wife, but when she refused to grant it, he simply moved to L.A. and pretended she didn't
0: exist. This became a huge problem when Gable began sleeping with actress Joan Crawford in 1933.
1: Joan became pregnant shortly after, Strickling and Mannix arranged an abortion, but that was only part of their worries.
0: Gable's wife threatened to go public about Gable's marriage unless the affair was ended. Meanwhile, Joan's husband was also threatening to reveal the affair publicly.
1: Strickling and Mannix called Crawford and Gable into their office and banned the duo from seeing each other, at risk of being fired from MGM.
0: Gable and Joan were angry and heartbroken, but there was nothing they could do.
1: But Gable bounced back quickly. In 1935, he began a romance with the young actress on the set of The Call of the Wild. And this actress, Loretta Young, soon found out she was pregnant.
0: Other stars who found themselves with an unplanned pregnancy, like Judy Garland and Lana Turner, came to Strickling and Mannix for abortion arrangements. But Young was Catholic and didn't believe in abortion. She wanted to keep the baby.
1: Strickling and Mannix couldn't risk Loretta growing obviously pregnant in LA. For the first few months, Strickling and Mannix gave Loretta special costumes to cover her growing belly. When she began showing, Strickling arranged a long vacation for the star.
0: However, Loretta never went on vacation. Instead, she traveled to New York, where she had a pre-vacation interview with the press, then traveled back to Los Angeles in secret. There, Strickling arranged for her to carry her baby to term in a secret location.
1: Loretta, now out of work and banned from seeing everyone she knew, spent her days in a small, two-bedroom bungalow in Venice Beach under the constant surveillance of an MGM nurse. She was not allowed to leave the home even to go into the yard and had to stay away from the windows for fear of neighbors recognizing her. It was isolating and lonely.
0: Initially, the tactic worked. But when Loretta missed the wedding of her own sister, the press grew suspicious and began to ask whether she was secretly pregnant.
1: Strickling needed to silence the rumors. And luckily, he had a solution. Loretta would do an interview proving she was extremely ill and had been secluding herself to get well.
0: A journalist was invited to the small house she had been staying in after promising discretion. He saw Loretta sitting cheerily in bed, an IV in her arm, pillows piled on top of her for comfort. A nurse came in several times during the interview to change the IV.
1: Of course, the IV was fake, and the nurse was an actress. But it worked. Photoplay ran the article about Loretta's unspecified illness, and the press quieted down. Loretta had her daughter, Judy, in total secrecy.
0: Strickling even doctored the birth certificate and purposefully misfiled it to make sure the child could not be traced to Loretta.
1: The only way Loretta could keep the baby was if she adopted her own child. Loretta was forced to give her baby to an orphanage.
0: Then, a year later, Strickling got special permission for Loretta, a single woman, to adopt a child, which was illegal at the time.
1: He then ran an elaborate PR campaign publicizing Loretta's kindness in adopting a poor orphan. Finally, two years after becoming pregnant, Loretta could openly care for her own child. According to family lore, Judy did not find out she was her mother's biological daughter for 30 years. Affairs and pregnancies weren't the only relationship problems Strickling and Mannix routinely fixed. In fact, they managed many of their clients' sexual needs with the help of the local brothel, Lee Francis' house.
0: Strickling and Mannix were very aware that it was impossible to stop people from having affairs. But if their actors were sleeping with Francis's sex workers instead of other actors, there was no on-set drama and fewer leaks to the media.
1: Furthermore, the sex workers at the brothel were often star lookalikes, sometimes even getting surgery to look more like certain celebrities. This was a draw for both visiting dignitaries who wanted a Hollywood experience and for their own actors and actresses who wanted to hook up with people they didn't actually have relationships with. Again, with less mess and risk of
0: scandal. The brothel was also an excellent way to cater to the needs of LGBTQ actors and actresses. This was particularly important because gay sex was illegal at the time.
1: Besides offering partners of various sexualities, Francis could transport sex workers to off-site locations to protect the privacy of stars.
0: This discretion was invaluable to MGM. Strickling personally made sure the accounts were paid, then made sure they were difficult to track back to the studio.
1: However, sometimes discretion wasn't enough to keep the LGBTQ identities of actors secret.
0: Just as the press had noticed the absence of Loretta Young, tabloids notoriously picked up on eligible stars who failed to show up in public with partners of the opposite sex. Rumors began to fly, especially if the actor or actress had any androgynous qualities.
1: Sterling and Mannix often arranged what was known as lavender marriages or a for-show marriage between at least one LGBTQ person and an opposite-gender person to prove that a movie star was straight.
0: The marriage alone wasn't always enough, though. Sometimes Strickling would stage entire public vacations between two stars he'd forced to marry. He'd put in their contracts that they had to kiss or otherwise show public affection.
1: On the other end of the LGBTQ cover-up spectrum were the stars who were very much out and proud, like Greta Garbo.
0: Garbo openly brought young women as her plus one to parties and was as public as possible about her lesbian relationships. Strickling constantly had to bribe papers not to run information as he tried to contain Garbo.
1: Garbo was particularly progressive and had no interest in playing along with heterosexual expectations she finally pushed too far when she started openly hosting lesbian sex parties and approached MGM about starring in a major theater production in drag.
0: Garbo was too big a star for MGM to drop, so Strickling and Mannix instead worked to break up whatever relationship Garbo was in. Their thought was that she'd eventually find dating women too stressful and get in line. Instead, Garbo would spend the rest of her career struggling to balance her sexuality and MGM's aggressive erasure of people like her.
1: The emotional damage of living this way was deep and long-lasting, but MGM's image stayed squeaky clean. In fact, MGM would soon prove it would go to horrific lengths to hide the skeletons in its closet.
0: In a moment the biggest cover-up in MGM's history.
1: Now back to the story.
0: By 1937, Strickling and Mannix had been fixing scandals together for over a decade.
1: Other than studio head Louis Mayer, they were the most powerful men at MGM, and arguably in Los Angeles. They were barely into their 40s.
0: MGM had most of Hollywood paid off or bribed, They had eyes everywhere, from the police station, to the DA's office, to the hospital, to journalists.
1: And they were going to need every resource, trick, and ally they had to deal with the scandal brewing in the summer of 1937.
0: Every year, MGM had a five-day sales conference for its national employees who worked to promote their films. These conferences were known for being luxurious celebrations, and employees worked hard to get invited.
1: But the 1937 conference was different. Sales had been particularly good that year, and MGM wanted to take the celebration to the next level. Strickling and Mannix helped come up with a plan that involved bringing men in by train treating them to non-stop drinking, and giving them a taste of living like Hollywood
0: elite. The goal was to amaze the employees into believing they worked for the best company in the nation, that they were truly special. But MGM didn't want details of the actual event getting out. It wouldn't be good for their image. So they billed the event as VIP and secret, which only made the attendees feel more important.
1: The Wild West Party was planned on a private studio lot. The Sunday beforehand, May 2nd, 1937, MGM posted a casting call for dancers needed that coming week.
0: Mannix and Strickling were masters of diversion and knew that the young women showing up wouldn't realize no film had been listed. They cast roughly 120 women, partly for their beauty and partly for their naivete.
1: One such dancer was 20-year-old Patricia Douglas, who had worked in both Warner Brothers and Columbia Pictures musicals and was fairly established on the scene. She was booked and told to return on Wednesday, May 5th at 4 p.m.
0: Patricia and the other women showed up at the designated time at Hal Roach Studios, about a block away from MGM.
1: There were oddities almost immediately. First... The studio gave the dancers cowgirl costumes that were too risque for the screen, but no one complained. It was a gig with a studio with a decent pay rate and a hot meal included.
0: Next, they bused the girls to a remote banquet hall several miles away and made them wait at the tables for almost two hours. Waiting wasn't entirely strange in the film world, but the lack of cameras, lights, and any sound recording team was.
1: At 7 p.m., the MGM execs showed up with 300 drunk men who had been promised a stag affair where anything goes. The men as intended assumed the dancers were sex workers and immediately began to help themselves.
0: The women had no means of escape, and were forced to fend for themselves. Because this kind of behavior was so expertly hidden from the public, none of the women had suspected this kind of bait and switch. They had trusted the studio.
1: Patricia tried to make the best of it and do her job dancing, just dancing.
0: But a particularly creepy man by the name of David Ross set his sights on her. He was a large 36-year-old bachelor from Chicago who indiscreetly started trying to grope Patricia as soon as she agreed to dance with him.
1: Patricia expertly navigated the situation and slipped away to the bathroom where she told the attendant she had a man
0: she couldn't shake. She wasn't the only one. As the men got drunker, more and more girls were retreating to the bathroom or switching tables to try and get away from them.
1: While some of the girls managed to get help from waiters or a few sympathetic actors who were there, Patricia had no such
0: luck. Ross had fixated on her, and he wasn't giving up. He had two other men help hold her down while he forced alcohol into her mouth. Patricia fought, but she was a small dancer and was easily overpowered by the three men pinning her.
1: In her later reports, she recalls them laughing as she struggled. As soon as she got away, she fled to the bathroom, but she was now extremely woozy from the glasses of scotch and champagne they'd forced on her.
0: She stepped outside for some air. To her horror, Ross clamped his hand over her mouth and threatened, make a sound and you'll never breathe again. He forced
1: her into the back seat of a car where he proceeded to rape her. Douglas started to pass out, but he slapped her and yelled, cooperate, I want you awake.
0: Shortly after, a parking attendant heard screams as Patricia staggered toward him.
1: She was raced to the Culver City Community Hospital. Dr. Lindquist, who co-owned the hospital, forced a douche rinse on Patricia before examining her, destroying any evidence of the assault. He then gave his professional opinion. Not only had Patricia not been raped, no intercourse had taken place.
0: The doctor was in Strickling and Mannix's pocket. His business depended on MGM customers, and in return, he helped cover up star problems.
1: Furthermore, there were 11 cops from four different police departments at the party, but no criminal reports were filed. It was the same old game. The authorities were on Strickling and Mannix's payroll.
0: Ross walked free. But Patricia wasn't going to stay down. When the studio refused to meet with her, she went to the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office and filed an official complaint against Ross.
1: Today, it's still difficult for a woman to file a rape case and win. This was even more true in 1937.
0: In fact, Patricia Douglas was, as far as we know, the first woman to file any rape or sexual harassment charges against a studio. This was in part because, even if a woman were to somehow win a case, her reputation as sexually loose would destroy her career.
1: Patricia was undaunted, but Strickling and Mannix weren't going to let that stand. The damage to the studio would be too much.
0: Unfortunately, the D.A. was also in MGM's pocket. When nothing moved forward, Patricia sought legal counsel from a family friend who had mob connections and a history of success at winning unwinnable cases.
1: He strategically threatened the D.A. Either they'd take Patricia's case or Patricia would go
0: public. This kind of publicity was exactly the sort of thing Strickling and Mannix wanted to suppress. But despite their best efforts, the story started to leak. On June 4th, 1937, the LA Examiner ran a lurid account of the Roach Party. They couldn't legally say rape, but they made it as clear as they could.
1: However, it's likely Strickling was behind the article, as it never actually mentioned the name of the studio at fault. Furthermore, it provided Patricia's full name, picture, and address which all put her in danger for hate mail and personal attacks. MGM had shown Patricia just how dangerous it was to take them on.
0: Still, public knowledge of the party could ruin MGM's image. Not only was it a sex-fueled, drunken, a moral nightmare complete with the rape of teen girls, the studio had also spent an exorbitant $35,000 on the affair.
1: Strickling moved quickly, beginning an enormous smear campaign to blame the victim. He hired a private detective agency to track down every girl on the list and force her to support MGM. They wanted to make it look like Patricia had made the whole
0: thing up. He tried to paint Patricia as a drunk, but Patricia wouldn't back down. She had character references to back up the fact that she barely drank.
1: The detective agency also tried to paint Patricia as a loose woman who propositioned strangers, but their research quickly revealed she had been a virgin before the party. Her squeaky clean record and steadfast resolve were one of the toughest challenges Strickling had ever faced.
0: But MGM had power and resources. Strickling continued to wage a press war against her, and her Hollywood friends began to abandon her. They didn't want to lose their careers over this, which, of course, was part of Strickling's strategy.
1: The case was brought to court on June 16, 1937, but only two of the 120 girls were willing to testify for Patricia. Strickling had bought the others off or spooked them into
0: silence. On top of that, Strickling had arranged for the trial to be as demeaning and disheartening as possible. Patricia was forced to recount her rape in horrifying detail, then answer a battery of questions that put the blame on her.
1: Ross, completely protected by MGM, walked. To top off the horrible day, Patricia was tricked into encountering him face-to-face for a photo op. Strickling hadn't just won the case. He'd made sure Patricia knew resistance was painful and futile.
0: But Patricia still wasn't done. In July, she filed a new suit in the Los Angeles County Superior Court, this time against David Ross, Eddie Mannix, Hal Roach, and the casting assistant, Vincent Conniff, for unlawful conspiracy to defile, debauch, and seduce her and the dancers. She asked for $500,000 in damages, a whopping $8.8 million today.
1: Although MGM never issued a public statement on the case, plenty of internal memos gave it priority. It's not surprising why. The studio's insurance company didn't cover this. If Douglas succeeded, the studio was responsible for any damages awarded, not to mention the terrible press.
0: The legal battle raged for six more months. Patricia made it back to court in February 1938 but Strickling and Mannix were able to get the judge to throw out the case.
1: Within 24 hours, Patricia filed a suit in U.S. District Court, becoming the first person to take a rape case to the federal level and legally argue that rape is a violation of civil rights. This was a shocking first-of-its-kind case, which meant MGM was front and center in the news. If MGM were found responsible, Their sales would tank and Mannix and other executives would be out an enormous amount of money, if not their jobs.
0: Unfortunately for Patricia, MGM got to the person she needed most, her lawyer.
1: Because he wanted to run for office, MGM had leverage. He could either win a case against MGM or hold office in LA, but not both. Her lawyer didn't tell Patricia any of this. Instead, he failed to show up in court three times, leading to the case being dismissed. There were no more appeal options. Patricia was done, her rapist was free, and MGM remained untouched.
0: For Mannix and Strickling, it was one of their biggest victories. Almost no documentation of the event survives the case entirely disappeared for decades.
1: In fact, it was only made public near the end of Patricia's life, around the year 2000, long after Mannix and Strickling had both died.
0: While the Patricia Douglas case was playing out, Eddie's personal life was seeing its own scandal.
1: Known throughout his life for affairs, Eddie had spent several years having an affair with actress Mary Nolan in the 1920s and early 1930s.
0: Born in 1902, Nolan was only a few years younger than Eddie. She was stunningly beautiful and had a successful modeling and film dancing career beginning in the 1910s. Mannix wasn't her first affair, but he was her most dangerous.
1: Eddie was prone to beating the women he slept with, and Nolan was no exception. The damage from these beatings was so severe that she had to undergo 15 abdominal surgeries over the course of their relationship.
0: When she eventually ended things with him, he sought revenge. He used tactics similar to the Patricia Douglas case to blame Nolan for her own injuries. With help from the LAPD, he went after Nolan on drug charges. Nolan was addicted to morphine, but only because of the numerous surgeries Eddie had caused.
1: Eddie unsurprisingly won the case, leaving Nolan crippled, jobless, and without a settlement.
0: Something about that case was the final straw for Bernice, who had spent nearly 15 years refusing to divorce her cheating, abusive husband.
1: Finally, Bernice filed for divorce, but Eddie wouldn't be left
0: twice. In 1938, Bernice Mannix died in a mysterious car accident.
1: It's suspected that Eddie arranged the accident. There was a second set of tire tracks at the scene and evidence that Bernice's car had been sideswiped.
0: No investigation was ever held and Bernice was buried quietly.
1: Mannix married his newest lover, Tony Lanier, shortly after the death of his first wife. Tony and Eddie seemed to get on better than Eddie and Bernice, but this was in part due to Tony's acceptance of an open marriage.
0: For the remainder of the 1940s and 50s, MGM's studio system was nearly untouchable, and Mannix and Strickling reigned supreme.
1: Because they'd gotten so good at their jobs, We don't have much information about fixes during this 20-year time span.
0: However, there is one last alleged cover-up that many tie back to Mannix, the death of Superman actor George Reeves.
1: George Reeves got his start as a side character in the 1939 film Gone with the Wind, but never quite reached star level.
0: A little over a decade later, in 1951, he accepted the lead in the Superman film and following TV series, but allegedly hated the role.
1: He's often described as greeting Lois Lane actress Phyllis Coates with Welcome to the bottom of the barrel, babe.
0: It was around this time that Reeves met and began dating Mannix's wife, Tony.
1: Surprisingly, Eddie seemed fine with it. He had affairs of his own, and the marriage was officially open. On top of that, his health was failing, and he seemed to want Tony to be happy. He gave her permission to buy Reeves a home not far from their own.
0: Mannix also bought George a car, and when he and Tony went on vacation, he flew both Reeves and his mistress out with them. The arrangement went smoothly for seven years. Both Tony and Eddie seemed to expect that when Eddie died, Reeves would propose to Tony.
1: But in 1958, Reeves went on a business trip to New York and met Leonor Lemon. They began having an affair. Two weeks later, he came home and broke up with Tony.
0: An inconsolable Tony spent weeks trying to call Reeves at all hours of the day and night. She started to have his car followed, probably with Eddie's help. Then Reeves began experiencing... Bad luck.
1: First, his dog disappeared.
0: Not long after, Reeves was in a terrible car accident caused by the fluid in his brakes running out. The incident caused him to fly through the windshield.
1: Reeves' mechanics' official opinion was that, quote, someone wanted him dead.
0: People speculate that Mannix may have been behind the car accident. After all, it's likely he had his first wife killed.
1: Then, on the fateful morning of June 16, 1959, Lemon came home to find Reeves face down and naked on his bed with a bullet hole in his skull. The official cause of death was suicide. However, Reeves' body was embalmed before any coroner was able to examine it, suggesting a cover-up.
0: Additionally, no police investigation was ever held. When an off-duty policeman went back and searched the home on his own time, he found three bullets, not just the one needed for suicide.
1: The L.A. police chief, William Parker, refused to reopen the case. Those suspicious of foul play point out that Parker was close friends with Eddie Mannix.
0: As with the rest of Strickling and Mannix's fixes, the story faded and disappeared. Reeves' death was written off as a suicide.
1: But the duo's career was coming to an end. The studio system, which had controlled its actors for three decades, was giving way to a new model of television shows and film styles.
0: On top of that, Eddie's health was getting worse. His heart was giving out, and he soon found himself confined to a wheelchair. In 1963, Mannix died of a heart attack in his Beverly Hills home. He was 72.
1: Around the same time, Howard Strickling retired, leading a quiet life in Los Angeles with his wife, until he too passed away in 1982 at 86 years old.
0: Strickling and Mannix had left the fixer business at just the right time. Television was killing off the old style of filmmaking, as fewer people spent Fridays at the movies
1: the studio system and its iron-fisted grip on its stars faded from fashion, as did the countless stories Strickling and Mannix had fixed over the years.
0: But the legacy of their involvement and the success of MGM continues to loom large over Hollywood even today. Behind it is a long shadow of lives crushed in the pursuit of wealth, success, and fame. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll be back with more on the dark side of Hollywood.
1: You can find all of Parcast's shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts.
0: If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Taylor Cleland and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner.